Hi, welcome to Clark Talks. I'm Columbia News reporter Jake Thomas. And I'm Katie Sword. On this episode of Clark Talks, we have the man who stares at campaign finance documents. Glenn Morgan, a conservative activist and resident of Thurston County, has filed more than 300 complaints with the Washington State Public Disclosure Commission, which enforces the state's campaign finance laws. Morgan's complaints have largely targeted Democrats, including some in Clark County. His complaints often allege that a politician's campaign was late in filing paperwork that revealed where they were getting their contributions and how they were spending it. Some of these complaints he has followed up with a citizen action lawsuit where a private citizen can sue on behalf of the state. Morgan's detractors say he's weaponized the state's campaign finance system by splitting hairs over relatively harmless errors. But Morgan says that these errors aren't so harmless and he's trying to uphold the state's campaign finance laws. Katie and I talk with Morgan about how he got so involved with the arcane matter of a campaign oversight, how he goes about finding his targets, why he wants more people to file complaints, and where he might turn his attention next. Later, we'll talk with Colombian breaking news reporter Andy Matarisi about an upcoming Sunday story on the bail system and criticisms that it disproportionately harms minorities and the poor. There's an effort to reform the system underway, and Matarisi looks into what that might mean for Clark County. So, so I was hoping we could get into the background of, of this situation. So what got you so interested in the state's campaign finance system? Uh, the, what really got me interested in it, and I was, I was marginally familiar with it as much as anybody who's kind of involved in politics would be, uh, because I'd run for office once in 2010 and a couple times for school board um, when I was elected to the school board. So I was familiar with some of the, you know, the basics. But uh, I had what really got me motivated in the way that I became interested here was uh, the 2016 election cycle in Thurston County, where I had set up a couple of uh, PACs to help um, to just engage. I was, I was involved in the commissioner races here, which I've been an active and engaged person on those uh, issues for uh, about six years at that point in time. And um, the state Democrat Party filed a uh, complaint against me. And actually, I got sued a couple times, once by them and also by um, this uh, cult leader named J.D. Knight, who was a big donor to the Democrat Party. And so it all happened all one time. I had a death threat against me by a, a Democrat PCO that resulted in a restraining order against him. And it all kind of went happened in one real short cycle. And the uh, that really motivated me to get more interested in the campaign finance laws. And I started realizing how uh, I, I thought I understood and knew what the laws were, but they were actually much more, um, there were a lot more problems with them than I had even realized. And, and uh, so I really just started uh, paying attention to what the state Democrat Party had been doing for many years. And I started doing similar activities where I was paying attention to uh, filing complaints and uh, just kind of following their lead on, on some of the problems with the campaign finance laws. And that's when I realized how few people were actually complying with the statute. What were some of those problems with the campaign finance laws? Well, and it's, there's two things. So one is what the problems are with the statute, which became more apparent as I, as I became more involved in, in studying it and, and paying attention to what was happening out there. And then the other element to that question is probably that uh, what were the violations? So the, uh, the problems with the campaign finance laws, um, and that's, it is a bit of a broader conversation there, but uh, they there are some elements of the statute that uh, have been addressed, I hope, recently, but that were just really ridiculous things that you could violate and, uh, and get in substantial trouble for, but I don't know that it was really beneficial to the public um, whether you had that issue corrected or not. And a couple of examples would be, for instance, when um, 
that only one uh, you had to have a, a treasurer could be the only person that would donate money or uh, deposit money into your account. Whereas the the reality of most modern campaigns is that uh, you have usually a couple different people who can donate into your accounts. And but yet if you did, you know, arguably under the statute, if you had somebody outside of your treasurer, then you would be uh, in violation of the statute and also and liable to pay fines. Also, things like uh, when you set up your uh, uh, account because of some changes in the statute where they said you had to do it electronically and uh, if you had reserved a website a month before then you would automatically be in violation the day you filed your year uh, uh, campaign so there were things like that that uh, that were just kind of some of these little ridiculous um, issues that needed to be changed just to catch up with modern times if nothing else the typical violations that I was finding were and I was kind of using the state Democrat Party's standard that they set uh, with the Kim Wyman complaint they had filed in 2016 when she was running for Secretary of State, which was that if you've uh, and they were right, if you file um, late reports or even if you've gone back and corrected because your treasurer made a mistake or something like that, and you've uh, not included all your expenditures or your contributions, uh, then that's a pretty substantial violation under the statute. And uh, come to find out, that's actually probably one of the most common um, problems uh, in, in campaign finance reporting. At least it was the most common one that I found. And so a lot of people were late. And in fact, Kim Wyman's case, which the Attorney General took up after the state Democrat Party filed the complaint, uh, was nothing compared to uh, easily 200 complaints I filed were far in excess of the violations that she had. So it turned out that there were a lot of problems with that, just, just keeping up with filing. And some of that I was hoping to try to correct with the recent bill uh, that, that came to the legislature to make uh, the filing process a little bit more predictable. And because there's actually multiple different time uh, frames, depending on how close you are to an election cycle and some other issues mm -hmm. with the reporting that make it a lot more complicated, I think, than it needs to be. But um, I wasn't able to, to make that reform uh, available. But that was, that was one of the more common uh, problems, and, and the statute's pretty uh, aggressive and pretty harsh on that. Uh, there were some changes that we were able to make in this recent bill that may, allows people to go back and make some, some minor technical changes without, you know, officially getting the, the, the hammer thrown at them for violating the statute. And, and weren't some sections of that vetoed, of that bill? There were. Two sections were vetoed, uh, and the two sections that were vetoed by Inslee had to do with uh, last-minute contribution. Uh, levels, and those were, I, it's kind of unfortunate that he vetoed it, and I think it was partially just out of ignorance. Okay, so just to bring this back around, so you, you ran for office, you just set up some political action committees a couple years ago. Uh, Democrats started filing PDC violations against you. You started looking into the, the nature of those complaints, and you start. and what did you do next? Did you start filing complaints against them, against Democrats? Yeah, some of them, and, and actually it was just more uh, learning the uh, public disclosure um, system, their their open data website, and so once I started to learn how to use it more, and it was it was a pretty wide variety. It was uh, local candidates, uh, committees, unions, judges, um, you know, senators, uh, or state senators, and uh, it, it it just became a fairly fairly big variety, and you know, it looked to me like. The, the Democrats, the, at least at the state level, had a really effective team of people who filed complaints on a regular basis. And in fact, when you look back over the previous um, 
20 years or so, 80% of the complaints were always uh, filed by the Democrat Party or Democrats, sometimes against each other, but mostly it was, um, they were really good at it and actually pretty skilled, and they had a pretty high-quality group of people who were familiar with that. The Republicans, on the other hand, seemed to be pretty um, uh, un, uh, pretty uncoordinated and unaware, uh, frankly. I mean, they, they seem to have, uh, when I was doing some research on this, it looked to me like many years ago, the Republicans decided that the Public Disclosure Commission was biased against them, and so therefore they just uh, stopped filing complaints and focused more on compliance themselves, and uh, on average, that's an average statement because there's some specific examples where that's not true. And so on average, the Republicans were trying to comply better, but they would never file complaints. And ironically, it's their, the fact that they stopped um, participating because it is a complaint-driven process with the assumption that two sides are going to play. I mean, you're going to have two people, two different groups at least in every political uh, race that keeps the other group honest because they know that they, they, can, they can file complaints on them. At least that's how it was envisioned in the 70s when it was set up. But, but it sounds like but one side isn't really participating. No, yeah, they, just, they basically bailed out. And so, ironically, the, the fact that they stopped uh, paying attention or, or filing complaints uh, in general, the, uh, that actually really hurt the Democrat Party because uh, when people started violating the campaign finance laws uh, on the Democrat side, there was no accountability of any kind, uh, and there hadn't been for decades. And so what happened is, the, because the statute's kind of confusing, people tend to just hand from one treasurer to another the lore of how to do it, right, because they, they'd already done it for the previous cycle. And so generally, if you had fallen off the wagon and hadn't been filing you know, correctly for years, why would a new treasurer come in and do something different? They're unlikely to go back and read the whole statute. And so, really, I think a lot of it was just the, the, the descending uh, failure to comply was, was just starting to become cultural more than anything else. And the Republicans, to some extent, you know, ironically, are actually at fault for that because they stopped filing complaints. And, you know, a complaint filed every now and then actually kind of keeps everybody on their toes. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's really why it probably appeared more dramatic over the last year and a half than, than it would otherwise uh, seem like. So in the last almost two years now, how many complaints have you filed? Well, in the past 15 months, I've filed about 330 complaints, uh, which is probably a, a new state record as far as uh, volume in a, in a short window of time. Um, and not all of those were citizen action notices, which are the ones that tend to get more attention. Some of them were just uh, straight-up PDC complaints. Uh, and uh, about 100 of those are in court right now or have been settled in court, either by the attorney general or myself. And, um, and then some have been, uh, especially some of the earlier ones when I didn't understand the statute as well, um, they, uh, you know, they've, they've just resulted in, in maybe a fine or a warning letter or something else. And so how many of those are against, are, are against Republicans or are they all against Democrats? Well, the Democrat Party met with me. Um, through one of their uh, county chairs, it was actually uh, recently um, uh, departed. Or I guess he just resigned. King County Chair Bailey Stober had met with me in early of last year, and he said, "Hey, we've got all these complaints we're going to file against Republicans. If you keep filing um, your complaints, you know we'll we'll file a bunch of complaints against Republicans." And I told him, "Well, that's fine. Go ahead. I mean, it's not my it's not my problem. And in fact, that would help." achieve the goal of reforming the statute and bringing more attention to it if they did it. And, and so that's what they did. 
And obviously they have, you know, thousands of times more resources than, than I ever could and uh, put together. And they have a lot more people that know what they're doing and filing complaints. So I think it was more of just a divide and, uh, and focus your energy sort of uh, process. I mean, there's, there's hundreds that I haven't filed just because I haven't had the time. So would you be happy if there were just more complaints coming from all sides, you know, regardless of, I guess, who's filing them, just to keep everything in check? Is that kind of what you're hoping for? Or Well, actually, I think that's going to produce the most, the highest compliance level with the trans campaign finance transparency laws that, that, that we would have. Um, from a, for a good of the, if, if the goal is transparency, and I think that that's actually a goal that, regardless of your political affiliation or background, that you're going to support. Um, and all surveys have shown this. Everybody wants to know who's funding campaigns. The question just becomes, how do you implement it? And it's, you're not going to have the, you're never really going to have the resources at the Public Disclosure Commission to go out and be the, the they aren't the ones who are going to be filing complaints themselves. And the problem is when they do, there's institutional bias at the at the agency that's going to be real or or could happen in the future that um, you know you're not going to avoid the fact that it's going to look like they're picking on certain groups of people and what you always have is that um, and this is pretty universal the to the Republicans every complaint that's filed against them they always view it as minor and and it's just technical and it really it's just somebody's picking on us. And, but any complaints filed on the other side are perceived as awesome and, uh, boy, those guys are really trying to cheat the system. And if you go talk to Democrats, they'll say the exact same thing. Any complaint on us is going to be minor, technical, we didn't mean it, our, our treasurer was a volunteer. But, boy, any complaint that gets filed against Republicans, those guys were way out of line and, you know, they're, they're egregious violators and, and the worst thing that ever happened in politics. So I think that that's just the nature of the partisan view of the situation. Um, I think that the results you know, as proven over the last 15 months are impossible to argue that compliance rates with the state's campaign finance laws are at the highest level they've ever been. Uh, there's no other time, at least in modern, you know, going back 20 years anyway, that people have done a better job trying to comply with the statute uh, than they have now. But so, that also has illustrated, I already think, demonstrated anyway, some problems with the statute as it's written. And there's probably going to need to be some more reform in the future just to, to clean it up and make it um, easier to comply with and, and maybe less abusive uh, and uh, also a little bit clearer on how what happens when you do violate the law. I mean, uh, we've chosen to go down campaign finance law and accepted it, and it's effectively a restriction on free speech one way or the other. And it's one that we generally accept it. We say that we're willing to accept our free speech restriction because it matters more to us than those funding campaigns than to have just an anything-goes sort of approach to funding political, um, the political process. What's the end goal with all this? Is this, do you think, what's your vision for the most effective campaign finance system in Washington? Is it just having something that's citizen-driven on both sides and just having some more, more, some more clear and more effective uh, legislation? I, you know, I, I do think that it needs to be as clear and clean and simple as possible, and we're not there yet. Uh, it needs to be much, much more obvious how people would comply uh, with the law because it, it can't be something that's so complicated that, uh, you know, you need a, a Ph.D. or, a, you know, uh, an MBA or something to actually understand the law or a lawyer, you know, to actually understand the statute. Uh, when I, a lot of attorneys haven't read this law before, and so when I introduce attorneys to this law for the first time, 
uh, and they read it and they actually read the whole thing, they usually call me back and they're laughing because it's so ridiculous and, and the ability to actually comply with it and not violate it in one way or another. Uh, I think you can keep from violating the major elements of it, but it's very difficult to comply with it uh, completely and actually not make any violations. So that would be a goal. I think and it should be a goal. That should be a really nonpartisan policy goal anyway. Um, but unfortunately, campaign finance law tends to be a, a game, because it is about politics, where they would try to game the law in a way that they, the perception is that it hurts the other side and helps their side. Whichever side, that doesn't matter which side you're on, that's usually the approach to campaign finance law. So uh, the, the problem is that it has a lot of uh, you know, confusing elements to it, I think, that are introduced for political reasons, not for transparency benefits. So it'd be nice if we could get to the point where we start, you know, we make it simpler. And the other element that would be probably, and it's probably the biggest risk now of campaign finance law is the nonpartisan or partisan nature of the Public Disclosure Commission itself, because this new, the way House Bill 2938 that was passed, the way that law is going to be implemented really is going to, it's really depending on the effective uh, honesty and, uh, and uh, consistency of the Public Disclosure Commission. And if they fail to, to do that then, or to be consistent and, and predictable and for you to know what you're going to be dealing with when you're uh, dealing with that agency, if they fail to do that, then we're really not in any better place than we were before. So at this point, you filed more than 300 complaints and you have a day job. I'm curious, what's your methodology for scrutinizing campaign filings? I mean, do you have a, you know, a formulaic process that you go through or, or how do you find all these things to complain about? Well, I, it is. I mean, it's, it's fairly random. Uh, sometimes you just uh, get on the site and you, you just, somebody just happens to draw attention to you uh, for whatever they were in the news or they said something. Uh, so you look at the campaign and that's how you find it. Sometimes it's, it's, it's pretty random. I, I've done this on Facebook before where I've done live postings while I was, while I was posting up complaints. And, uh, you know, I've had people send me messages about looking at somebody and I'll look them up and, you know, maybe they've committed significant violations to warrant a complaint. Maybe they haven't. And uh, so I've done it that way as well. It's kind of random. Um, I wish I could say that there was like some kind of grand scheme or plan behind the whole thing, but it, it really wasn't something that I thought I'd be doing, you know, a year ago at not this level. And, uh, but it just kind of, it just happened as I got into it. So you're always going to, whenever you're doing that kind of a volume, you're going to have kind of a templated approach to it after a while, once you understand the statute better. And especially early on, I, I would make a couple of mistakes with some of my complaints as far as uh, my interpretation of the statute versus what the historical approach has been on how they interpret those things. For example, there's a $100 limit. Um, you need to identify um, ad home addresses and employers for anybody that donates $100 or more to uh, a campaign. But it's actually been litigated. That's what the statute says. So it looks like it's, if you donate $100, then you're going to have to identify your employer. But the reality is it's actually $100.01. So it's anything over $100. So like early on, I had a couple complaints that uh, were incorrect. And once I once I figured that out, you know, you change your template a little bit. So you're looking at it a little bit differently. You mentioned this earlier that Democrats will respond to these complaints by saying that it's pretty minor. We had a volunteer treasurer. This is you're just picking on us. Um, and I've looked at a lot of these complaints. I've read, read a lot of them. And you're right that a, it's a pretty common thing that um, someone will file their uh, there's C3 or their C4, which details contributions and expenditures. Th those will be filed late. 
But I'm wondering right. what, what has been the harm of having these late? Because they get reported eventually. And has there been anything that's been problematic in these filings that has not come to light until after an election? I mean, I'm just driving up. Oh, yeah. what, is the, what is the harm? Lots. Yeah, huge numbers. Um, in fact, uh, many of the late reporting, um, King County, for example, King County Democrats, for example, had uh, made $30,000, $40,000 of the contributions uh, to candidates during the election cycle, and then they didn't report it for many, many months afterwards, so, uh, long after the campaign was over. And, and the whole point of campaign finance transparency is that you know who's actually funding campaigns. But if you have no idea that any of these contributions have been made during that time, and, and you know, $30,000 or it might have been 40000 I have to go back and look, but it was, it was quite a bit, then that is actually a fairly substantial impact on um, what's going on in those, in those elections. And if nobody knows they've made those contributions, then you're certainly hiding uh, that information from the public. And that's probably the biggest argument, though, the biggest reason why late reporting is pretty significant. I actually think that if we were going to reform the statute a little bit more, we would de-emphasize the importance of um, expenditures, um, unlike um, whether you spend money on signs or, or stuff like that. I don't think that's as important. I think contribution money should be more emphasized because that actually is giving you a sense of who's funding the campaigns, which is the whole point in the first place. But um, And one of my arguments originally had been to try to um, uh, make it simpler and uh, less frequent reporting on how campaigns spend their money because that's, low, that's just not so important. They can report it and we want to know eventually, but it's not so critical in the middle of the campaign. It's really more of what consultants care about. But uh, the late reporting on contributions, it, it's funny how common that actually was. Well, not funny, but I mean, it's, it's actually amazing how common that was in fairly sizable amounts. Uh, the Spokane County Democrats were probably one of the worst violators. And mostly there it was they just didn't report anything for almost a year. And then they hid the money that they were paying there when they did finally start reporting again. They, and it was $120,000 total there that, they were, that were, was being hidden from the public. But then the uh, part of it was because they were taking over-limit contributions uh, in excess of what they were allowed to receive. And they were trying to hide how much money they were getting by, by putting it, by not making it apparent where that money was coming from. And they actively also tried to hide how much they were uh, paying their executive director. So you did have some cases where um, significantly bad behavior was, was uh, exposed. There was a recent case, too, in uh, Thurston County, and it's in court. But uh, the, the, the main issue on this one was that the candidate – uh, ran a mini-reporting campaign, but they actually took over-limit contributions, and they were hiding behind the mini-limit, uh, mini-reporting uh, requirements, which is $5,000 or less for a campaign, but they were actually taking over-limit contributions, and uh, and they just weren't reporting them. And that's pretty, those are pretty significant violations, at least of the spirit and intent of the of transparency and reporting and campaign finance laws. So uh, and there's a number of cases like that out there. You know, we've tended to look at this from a partisan uh, perspective, but uh, where significant violations are actually happening that I think people don't aren't paying as much attention is in uh, for judges, for example. I had two different judge um, complaints where the judges literally filed nothing. I mean, just just flat out nothing. Hmm. And there's and there was uh, and I think that that raised a little bit more attention. In fact, uh, the judges are where I'd like to focus a little bit more attention now. Because these judge races, I think, get ignored. 
and yet there's some pretty substantial violations. And in one case, uh, uh, Judge Stoltz out of uh, Superior, uh, Pierce County Superior Court, um, I was contacted by some people who were concerned about some of her sentencing uh, decisions that she'd made while she was in Superior Court towards people that seemed way outside of sentencing averages. And they were trying to figure out if she was being influenced by some different civic or business leaders in the community uh, based on the nature of the complaints uh, as a lawsuit. And they couldn't find that out because they didn't know how much money uh, was being donated to her campaign. And they didn't know who was who was funding it. And she ran full, full-blown campaigns. And uh, so sometimes, you know, uncovering some of this, either you're um, at least getting to the truth and, and perhaps uh, exposing some corruption or, per, or perhaps you're just eliminating a conspiracy theory that's not based on reality. But either way, that's a good thing. And uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunities to, to open up um, some of the transparency just by better enforcement, but just paying more attention to it uh, out there. And that's just one example. Okay. Well, Glenn, thanks so much. This has been great. Thank you. Welcome, Andy Matarisi, our breaking news reporter. You've been working on a story about bail reform and pre-justice trial reform. So we've reported in the past on the aging jail system and the issues there. So what's what's the issue with the bail system? It's not specifically bail, maybe, but you think of it as a pre-trial release condition setting. Okay. It's you, they arrest you. You have your first appearance, usually the next judicial day. And then they determine, you know, your bail bond amount. It's a little too technical, but uh, whether they let you go on personal recognizance, so you can come back later, or in some cases, if they can hold you. Um, the uh, the problem, I guess you could say, is uh, that a huge share of people nationwide in jails are there, not having been convicted of a crime. And if you, uh, like we do in this country, have a presumption of innocence and a uh, at least in Washington, and definitely in Washington by law, there's a presumption of innocence and a uh, there's supposed to be a preference toward keeping people out of jail. And um, I got into this, like we were talking about, because we do all kinds of jail coverage. The jail is a constant and recurring issue, a potentially $200 million issue. So if you look at, if you start to think about the, the demand and the who is coming into the jail question, one thing that I think might be worth talking about is the people who are being confined before they've actually been convicted of a crime. I understand that there's a national effort underway to reform the, the bail system or the pretrial system, correct? Uh, yeah, I'd say that. There's my, <laughs> this is a kind of my read, that depending on where, where you are in the country, what your court system looks like, and whether or not you're some wonky uh, civil rights law and justice uh, person, how much you will see this conversation come up can vary. But it, people I talked to said, like, yes, this is a growing uh, concern, a growing issue people are looking at as a way to address these growing jail populations and rising budgets and all the things that come with having more and more people in jails that aren't getting bigger. So what does this effort to reform the bail system look like in Washington State right now? And where is Clark County? So there isn't a statewide uh, effort yet, um, or in Clark County really. There's a lot of, uh, but there is a lot of curiosity over two, uh, two pretrial release reform, uh, I guess, experiments going on in Yakima and Spokane. Uh, they're slightly different. Uh, the Yakima one is, I think, jointly through. It's a Department of Justice adjacent deal, but what they're doing is. Um, 
they're creating more resources to get more information to the judge when the when he or she sets that uh, that release those release conditions. It would be they would you know someone would be arrested, come to court, they would have their lawyer assigned to them that morning, and probably most likely never have had a lawyer yet, had an attorney to represent them, and then the judge would just have to make a call, you know, up down, you're out, you stay with bail, right there on the spot. Now they have a pretty complex interview uh, infrastructure and this actuarial tool where they can enter a bunch of static characteristics about an RSD and get sort of a a better uh, better understanding of the risk so the judge can make has a lot more information when they make a call. Mm-hmm. On the other end of that, in Yakima, they also have a, a, um, a larger supervision infrastructure that when, if you, when and if you're released, there are more means to keep track of you, make sure you come back to court, see how things are going. The kind of the ancillary issue with keeping people in jail who may not, who, with keeping people in jail before trial is that it's really disrupted their lives. It ultimately, people would argue, leads to more leads to more crime, leads to just more problems down the road because they might lose their job, their house, their family, whatever. And then that's not really solving the problems that led them to getting picked up in the first place. So, and there's not any reform currently in Clark County, but is there are there people talking about it, trying to get this started? Yeah, I talked to. Uh, the story there will be a Scott Collier on Superior Court judges the county has been sidelong talking about this uh, his read is that the county and a lot of the other counties in the state and the legislature itself are all kind of waiting on what they see out of Yakima and Spokane before they make any of their own reform choices if the state Supreme Court want, or the body that says the court rules or the legislature want to change something the counties want to wait for the, the state to make up its mind before they try to do something on their own um, some might, but yeah, there is, there's a lot of curiosity about where, to, what's going to happen in Yakima and Spokane, the results they see and the data they gather. That's a big thing is the data. There isn't really a lot of information in Clark County and in a lot of jurisdictions as to who is coming back and who is not coming back to court based on whatever release conditions were set. Over the course of reporting this story, was there anything surprising? I mean, I... Yeah, this the share the sheer share of people who are in jail without a uh, conviction. I didn't I didn't know that. Uh, nationwide, it's like sixty five percent as of twenty sixteen. Um, it's uh, according to the Department of Justice has pretty much steadily been rising since uh, uh, two thousand. Um, I don't have a I don't have a figure for I feel like I had a figure for Clark County, but I'm not sure if there is one. Again, there's a big there's a real big data component. A lot of people just don't know, like who they're getting in and the types of people they're bringing in and letting go and bringing back in once they were let go or not. But that really surprised me, I mean, because you, know, you would hope that we're imprisoning people only when we really, really need to. Yeah. Um, so without really a lot of data or actual decisions being made, how do you go reporting a story like this? A big component of all these reform efforts is to create an infrastructure to gather that data. Um, anecdotally and you know, a lot of academic research and sort of a lot more kind of random sample focus research shows that having you know having a cash bail system keeping people in in jail before trial disproportionately affects uh, all poor people uh, right away because you know if you can't if you can't make that bond if you can't pay your way out then you're going to stay and uh, there's also 
uh, a lot of evidence that it affects uh, you know people of color a lot more. So Andy, thanks for coming on the podcast. And your story about the bail system and efforts to reform it runs in this Sunday's Columbian. And that's our podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find the podcast just about anywhere you find podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We post it straight to the Columbian's website the first Thursday of each month. So you can find it basically everywhere. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you later.